for all the listeners out there, I just I just gave Phil the keys to the kingdom, um, and you're not going to get that. Uh, he he's special to me, and the rest of you, uh, you'll get a watered down version of it. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. Sometimes intelligent conversation mixed with witty banter, often just stream of consciousness, but mainly a dialogue between creatives to find out what motivates us in film, art, and life. This is Creative by Design with Philip LG. What's up, beautiful people? My name is Philip LG, and welcome to the show. Before we get into it, I want to say thank you so much for all the positive feedback I've been getting with people reaching out and just expressing their gratitude or giving me ideas. Um, it's really nice to know that people are listening and that they've taken something away. That's why we're doing this. That's why we want to create something that is a little bit part education, part inspiration for when you're kind of alone and unafraid um, in the wilds of Alaska or um, Texas or Arkansas by yourself trying to do this thing. So thanks so much for reaching out. As always, if you have any questions or thoughts or things to add, um, shoot me an email or a Facebook message and we'll try to get an answer or get you involved in the community as much as we can. So my guest today is an Emmy Award winning director and producer and freelance uh, director, producer, editor, all while simultaneously being a reserve Air Force colonel, which in case you don't know is pretty high up there. I had the distinct opportunity to DP for him a couple of jobs last year and I can tell you from experience that he's one of the most intelligent, creative and driven people and has a very specific vision, which as a DP is one of the most important things I look for in a director. We not only talk about his journey, but we address some of the biggest problems with military visual storytelling today, as well as towards the end, we talk about what it takes to be successful in the military as well as outside the military. And so uh, this is my conversation with Jim Fabio. First of all, man, I appreciate you taking the time. I know uh, you have a lot going on. Um, so we'll make this, you know, as easy as possible. I know that you do a ton of things. You're uh, an editor and a cinematographer and a director and a producer. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Like, what's do you, do you have a, I don't want to say favorite, but what do you, what is your goal? What are you leaning towards? You're right. I am. You know, a few years ago, without trying to be pretentious, I started just referring to myself as a filmmaker um, because it's hard when people say, well, what do you do? It's hard to say, well, I'm a producer, director, cinematographer, editor, writer, um, researcher, all of these things that are within the discipline of um, I guess telling visual stories, right? Motion media stories. Um, and so, uh, it just became a little bit easier to say, well, I'm a filmmaker, but then that also lumped me in with all of these, um, you know, Johnny come lately, uh, internet style, uh, you know, filmmakers, people throwing anything up on YouTube, um, or the pretentious types who, you know, say, well, I, I'm a filmmaker and I'm above, many things, but, uh, mm-hmm. yeah, a filmmaker is a good term. You know, I make films, um, short films, longer films, uh, true to life or, or 
very documentary style films, uh, sometimes narrative films where it's scripted or designed. Um, but, but I suppose that's what I would say I do. Um, it's been a long time getting to all of those disciplines within the filmmaking. When I initially left active duty military service back in 1998, and uh, I went back to Syracuse University to get my master's degree in television, radio, film, probably uh, along with a lot of your listeners who have, who were either there at the time with me, some of the folks I've served with, or came later or maybe even before in the military motion media uh, visual journalism program. I'm sure I'm slaughtering the name of that, but you know, the military <laughs> programs, the photo and video programs at Syracuse there. Um, uh, it's a very similar program. I, I got my master's there after I got off active duty and then I jumped into the business in New York city, um, and then LA and then back to New York city and stayed there for a while. And at first I edited because I had learned in college. And then when I had served active duty, with uh, Air Force Combat Camera in Charleston, South Carolina for about three or four years. Um, I, uh, I passed that knowledge along to some troops. Um, I'm, a f I'm an officer. So, uh, you know, at that time I was a lieutenant and wasn't really common for the, the officers to be technicians, but I had had this experience in college at the Air Force Academy teaching myself how to edit on an avid nonlinear editing system, which was new at that time. <laughs> you know, when I started editing, we were on, uh, I don't know if you're old enough to have done this or any of the guys or gals out there listening, but um, it was reel to reel tapes. You put it, you put a tape, mm -hmm. videotape into a machine, ka-chink, big loud sound, and you put another one in and one was the source and one was the record. And you used a uh, RM450, I think it was Panasonic RM450 controller with these big knobs on it, whoosh, whoosh, back and mm -hmm. forth. And you find yeah. your endpoint, your out point, hit a button and it all these noises and ka-chink and you know it made the edit for you and then you made another edit and another edit and we called that or i guess we didn't call it anything we called it editing and uh, and then <laughs> these computer systems came out avid was the really the first one there was video toaster before that um but uh, avid was really the one that kind of stuck the flag in the ground and and made the claim and I, it to me is still the the pro end editing system uh, avid media composer they are not paying me to say that um just <laughs> where all my experience and uh, expertise lies um and i taught myself to use it and so i was an editor along with then you know graduating and jumping into the combat camera unit and being given the job of producer director in the military but i knew how to edit taught some of the troops and so even as i went through film school um there at syracuse after those four years and had jumped into the reserves then at that time, staying with combat camera and was eager to start my civilian career. Um, editing became the thing that helped me, um, get, uh, started. You know, I was able to jump right into some editing gigs, um, mm -hmm. based on contacts from Syracuse, um, who, you know, recommended me probably, unqualified to be an editor at that point <laughs> truly you know on the, on the professional level in the broadcast business but i started doing editing for mtv networks uh vh1 was the first channel i worked for um in new york city and i probably spent a good five or six years um 
primarily as an editor. You know, most of the money I was making, I was being paid to edit. Um, but the aspiration has always been, and is still, to be the producer director, um, the the creative lead on the project, to be making the project. Whether or not I continue to be a technician or a or an editor as well, which I sometimes still do. Um, so I have been an editor since the beginning. It's it, as far as the tech disciplines of production, editing is my favorite. And I really strongly encourage anybody who wants to be a storyteller, a filmmaker, right? Choose your pretentious term at, <laughs> at your will. Um, uh, your producer, director, particularly, you know, the lead, the creative lead on the project, <clears throat> the chief storyteller to edit first because editing, I've always felt, is the heart of storytelling. It's really where the storytelling happens. You know, there's, you can put it all in the can especially in documentary, right? Where you're not working off of a script. Oh, absolutely. There there are several hundreds of ways to tell the story. Um, Editing. In editing, you are the the storyteller. You become the director. You know, you're the next director, producer, whatever it is in that room. Um, And still still love editing, but I don't do as much of the editing as I used to. I have a lot of friends who are editors, and the way technology is, I, I can send them the footage, send them a script, let them kind of go to work on something while I get on to the next story or the next project. Um, and I would say these days I'm probably still editing maybe about a third of the work I do, a third of the projects I produce, direct, deliver. Um, and, and, and it's, I haven't been hired as an editor for hire for someone else's project in a long time, really just uh, editing my own stuff here. Um, I can continue to expand on the answer to that first question, if you'd like, with the cinematography, which I was no. never I, I was never a shooter until I moved to California. Um, oh, so we, we were in New York City for a long time. Um, and uh, and that's where I made the jump from being an editor to a producer director. Um, and it was in sports television where I was doing that, was working with a company called Redline Films as an editor for hire. Um, and opportunities came up to then jump out of the edit room and go produce and direct in the field. And uh, I, I, I did that. And along with being a field producer, director, um, came opportunities to kind of carry a second camera to uh, some of our higher end DPs, directors of photography. And um, I started really shooting that way, and I had familiarity with cameras and always liked it. Had done it in college, kind of kicking around. But that's where I really started was probably in like 2005, 2006 there. But in 2007, my wife and I moved from New York City out here to Santa Barbara, California, which is where I live now, where from where I work now, and also um, you know where I'm talking to you from, my office here. And Santa Barbara is a little off the beaten path from the New York LA production scene. And so, um, I had to start, I, when I first jumped here, um, opportunities came up to do some field producing, producing features for actually a rodeo show called, um, tough as cowboy. They were, you know, rough stock, uh, rodeo cowboys riding bronking bucks and bronk bucking bronx and um (laughs) and bucking bulls um i had done some work with pbr the professional bull riders and you know kind of got enmeshed in that world that little niche area of sports uh there for a bit and 
So uh, I was asked to produce some pretty low budget feature stories, a little two and a half minute feature stories on the eight uh, rodeo athletes who were competing on that television series. And um, the budgets were low enough that instead of hiring camera crews, I said, I'll just shoot it myself. So I did everything myself. I shot it. I edited it. I didn't have a sound person with me. I just recorded all the sound and pulled it off. And they were very impressed. They liked my shooting style. And that kind of got me started shooting as well. And then it, I found out after trying to do that, trying to follow that model for a while, that it's, it's just exhausting and it's, it's, it's really hard to do it all on your own. But I did quite a bit of that over the following few years from probably 2007 to 2010. Um, the cameras had gotten small enough that you could do that. You, you could kind of run and gun and go light. I know, um, you know, the, the combat camera troops and counterparts on on active duty and in the reserves, you know, because all this time I'm serving in the reserves as well at my combat camera unit down in Charleston, uh, as a, you know, now captain and then probably a major and we're going through deployments and all that. So, um, you know, I was sort of doing a lot of the same kind of things that we were asking of the troops, um, you know, to be, especially on the video side, right. You know, we, in the military, you guys, and, and, uh, not so much me cause right in the, in the military, my role is producer director. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, we, we would ask you guys, uh, the videographers, troops out there. And now the, you know, what in the air force. And I think for you guys in the Marine Corps is all one, right. You know, you're, you're being asked to just be this monster storyteller who shoots video photos comes back edits the video tells the whole story makes a masterful documentary film without any assistance whatsoever um that's tough that's a tough that's (laughs) a tough beast and i know it because i I did it myself for you know those couple of years these days I, i i don't i don't shoot as much anymore um i really prefer to be a producer director who has a has a crew sound camera camera with assistance you know pa Mm -hmm. all of that because i find that if you really want to be a masterful storyteller you can't be bogged down in what are my audio levels and is this (laughs) shot overexposed is it in focus you know because i'm trying to conduct interviews or you know we're we're filming some documentary action um and fortunately most of the projects i work on these days uh afford me the budgets to do that uh, where i am either just the director for hire even having a producer to take care of some of the logistics and set up for me which is really great and luxurious uh or i'm the producer director managing the project and i hire the crews and uh, ask them to do you know the shooting and uh, under my direction and all of that and that's that's about where i am now uh these days my work takes me um i'm still doing a lot of sports feature stories so you know short features about athletes or or a story within sports you know athletes coaches some somebody involved in the sports arena i was actually going to uh ask you about that because uh, you know researching for our conversation i kind of looked up your vimeo and your imdb and all this stuff and i was like man this guy really does do a lot of sports oriented work is that just because you fell into that early on or is that something that you prefer or enjoy more than something else or like how did that end up happening it happened in new york um when i was an editor for hire um i think i alluded to it earlier but i was um in it was probably 2004 2005 i was most of the editing i was doing was for um 
MTV networks or uh, A and D history, those kinds of networks in New York City. And um, a friend I had met on on a VH1 gig, a fellow editor who we had brought on to be an additional editor to myself on a project, called me up. Um, we were all freelancers, so you know that's kind of how you got work. Kind of how you still get work. I still get work that way. You know, somebody right. called me up and said, "Hey, I'm working over at this really great production company called Redline Films, and they're doing some amazing high end documentary work." The, the, the company's primary client was ESPN, and the two principals of the company one was a director of photography, the other was a producer director, and they were the really great hot guys for ESPN. The guy who ran production at ESPN was tight with them. And this place was getting a lot of money to do some high end work. And so I went over there as an editor and I worked on a countdown show. Like, uh, you know, I think it was like, there was, was a series. It was their first series, which to, to build a really successful and profitable production company, you've got to have series type work um, for these networks. Um, you know, rather than one-off specials or this documentary, that documentary, you know, they had this like many episode series called who's number one. Um, it was on ESPN and, uh, I went over there and edited a couple episodes of who's number one for them. And it, you know, it's like best plays and it was like the, the top, I think, you know, it'd be the top 20 or top 10 or something like that. And you get all this archive footage and it was across all different sports and it was, it was great. It was fun and they paid well. And they paid on time, which is always important in the freelance <laughs> world. And, and they were giving me regular work. But it also coincided with um, these guys had this marquee show called Timeless. And uh, it was a new series. It was a documentary series. It was a sports documentary series. But it was almost the furthest thing from traditional sports, you know, the big pro sports that, that were, you know, baseball, basketball, uh, football and hockey, you know, the, the main sports, there'd occasionally be a story in that realm, but these were untold sports stories. And they were really just almost anything that would anchor you in, in a sport or competition, but they were off the beaten path and they were excellent stories, well told, amazingly shot by a group of really talented cinematographers. And I, and I, I started editing these stories and the very first story that I edited uh, we won an Emmy for, um, and you know, <laughs> it was, it was just, yeah, it was one of these just, you know, you kind of, you kind of hope for these moments that kind of propel you. And so, I mean, we didn't get that Emmy until the year following, but it was that story. But I immediately knew when I edited that first story on this series, I thought, this is what I've been looking for. This is great storytelling. You know, it had not, it really, I mean, it had nothing to do with sports and everything to do with telling human stories, these human interest stories, people with amazing stories, amazing characters. And uh, there were a group of three editors and one of the other editors was the guy who had called me to say, Hey, come over and work here. And we were the core of this thing. And there were a handful of producer directors at the time to include the principals of the company who were doing the work. And eventually um, about halfway through that first season, you know, when, when I was entrenched with these guys, um, I got to start producing these stories because 
you know, we would hire these uh, producers who would it would do okay, but you know, in the I felt in the editing, we was learning what works and what doesn't. I said, hey, we guys send me out on one of these stories, and got that opportunity. So that that was that was my start in sports. But that company, um, you know, the, where I learned really a lot of great storytelling um, was a sports company. So a lot of the contacts I was making were in sports, and the thing is, sports television between ESPN and you know, the NFL network and um, the, ma- the major broadcast networks, NBC, CBS, um, I'd say ABC, but that eventually folded into ESPN. So those are, your, those are the big sports departments around. They care and spend a lot of money telling good stories within sports because they have a vested interest in interesting the audience in these athletes and characters, coaches, uh, fans you know, families surrounding athletes and athletics in sports, because the more they pique your interest in those who are playing the sports, the more you'll watch the sport, right? That's the idea. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's a lot of great storytelling going on, documentary storytelling within the sports arena. Um, and that's, that was where it started. And when I made the jump to California, um, a lot of the contacts I'd had were coming out of that group there. And that connected me with the NFL network in los angeles um and uh eventually a a couple of small production companies here or there that are still connected with espn and nbc sports uh through whom i work on the olympics sometimes um so uh you know the it's the classic um you know one gig leads to the next leads to the next you meet this person eventually they call you to do some work here um and, uh, you know, those contacts eventually I, I led me to, um, I worked on a season of, um, American Ninja Warrior, even though that is produced by reality television companies, um, which are a little out of my main strike zone and, um, really mostly out of my desire focus to work with. Um, but they were trying to sports up their coverage of American mm-hmm. Ninja Warrior. And so uh, a friend of mine got the call and he needed a partner and he called me. And so we worked on a season of that show, which was eye-opening and uh, interesting in certain ways. And we met a lot of interesting folks there to include the athletes who were competing. But um, that that's really it. I'd, I'd love to say that you know a lot of the gigs I get are something I sort of earned on my own since. and uh, but, but probably 90 to 95% of the work I do somehow has something to do with a connection I made on a previous gig. So sports was not my target when I was in film school. It was not my interest, but um, at some point along the way, I did set some goals. And one of those goals being the primary was tell good stories. You know, I used to think, well, I have this goal of being a feature film director, you know, Mm -hmm. by this age or this time or winning an Oscar by X year, right? Right. Um, right. Those are kind of silly goals, really looking at them now in hindsight, because we can do that. But really, why would you want to achieve those goals if you don't want what achieving those goals means? And so I kind of refocused some of the goals I had had and, and shaped a lot of them into tell good stories that, you know, help change the world or motivate people or stir their emotions. And when I did that, I realized that 
that can lead to all of those things. And if you're not genre specific, like why, you know, I don't want this or I don't want that. I don't want music. I don't, I don't want to work in music television. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, good stories are everywhere. So the good stories were in the music industry, you know, the MTV networks, uh, and they're also in, in sports, you know, there's a lot of human drama in sporting contests it's built right in somebody's going to win and somebody's going to lose right, right. In film school <laughs> yeah. we learn to seek out the conflict sports gives it to you right on the, on the face of it so um and and it's become a an industry in which i can rely on pretty pretty good work that i think uh, allows me to tell or pretty pretty standard uh pretty regular work that allows me to tell good stories and so that's that's kind of why i'm so heavy in sports um mm. even though I do pursue other genres and work in other genres as well. Yeah. Um, so I don't want to gloss over this because I know we've been kind of talking about all this awesome stuff, but I'm going to come back for a second to your military service, right? Um, you did four years active, like you said, and you've done um, so far to almost 20 years in the reserves, right? So what made you initially decide to, and you went to, you, we, we talked about this, we were in Colorado, I remember, um, what made you decide initially to join? I was a kid growing up in the 80s, and um, during that time, whether through propaganda or films or whatnot, there's, there's a, just a pretty big notion that we were already engaged in this in this great cold war right mm-hmm. east versus west soviet union uh versus the united states and her allies and um you, you grow up with movies like red dawn <laughs> and top gun and all that and i think top gun has probably a lot to do with uh people from my particular year or uh era showing an interest in, in aviation, military aviation being fighter pilot, right? Because that's, I decided <laughs> I wanted to uh, be a pilot, military pilot, uh, fighter pilot when I was a kid sometime in junior high school or high school, I guess. My grades were good and my guidance counselor told me, you should go to the Air Force Academy. And I said, okay, I'll go to the Air Force Academy. And, um, and ultimately that's what I did. I went there and before I graduated, uh, actually, my freshman year at the Air Force Academy, we, the United States and, and allies, I suppose, invaded uh, Kuwait, right? To to or sorry, invaded Iraq and 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 went to Kuwait from Saudi Arabia to take back the the place from uh, Saddam Hussein and the Iraqi army, and so that first Gulf War. Um, seemingly was a big success and it was pretty motivating to those of us as we were in basic training and, and starting our uh, academy careers. But two years later after that war and um, really probably even more importantly, um, the fall of the Soviet Union in the late 80s, uh, 89, 90, the Berlin Wall coming down, we no longer had the big threat, right? The, the thing that was kind of the reason for going and becoming mm-hmm. this, uh, this, this Air Force guy. Um, and so the Air Force 
realized it was time for a big drawdown and they started to draw down and uh, they said, we have too many pilots. And so in the history of the Air Force Academy, they, they, you know, everybody who was pilot qualified had gone on to be a pilot. And that's what I had wanted to do. And I, I couldn't do that. Well, it, my grades weren't good enough that I wasn't going to be able to do that anymore <laughs> after <laughs> after already having been there for two years and uh, probably slacking off more than I should have. And uh, and so, you know, I, uh, I had to find something else to do. And I'd always had this interest hobbyish interest although I, I think in the back of my mind i thought i'd love to be a filmmaker someday um but uh there was one class i could take at the air force academy it was a tv news class that was kind of in that in that vein and the professor who taught that class was an air force major and he had been a combat camera officer an audiovisual officer oh, and wow. i asked him i said well what did you do in the air force he said well i did combat camera i said could i do that because they didn't really allow academy grads to go to that career field. It's very small and niche, and they, in the past, you know, taken people out of film schools and such. And he said, "Well, I'll see, let me see what I can do." And and uh, so I I made him my advisor in the English department. Declared um, kind of a general education major. Did some independent study with him, and he got me a job in combat camera. And that was how I got my start in combat camera. But joining the military was about sort of fighting the communists and being a fighter pilot and all of that stuff. But eventually it became, uh, me being a combat camera officer and a producer director in a combat camera unit, which I loved, really enjoyed it. And is why I'm still a reservist. And I think I was telling you before, I've re- I'm just recently returning now, uh, after some time away from combat camera as a, pretty senior officer in the air force i'm i'm returning to the organization now the air force public affairs agency whose biggest role is uh essentially group command or overseeing several combat camera squadrons including my old unit the first combat camera squadron at charleston and video production units at hill air force base and lackland air force base um which i'm excited about so i'm now the ima or the reserve augmentee to the commander of that organization i uh, just started that job a couple months ago that's fantastic so that's, where we are. yeah yeah so it all circles around um so hopefully i answered your question and uh gave a little background at the same time yeah you did um you know what i'm interested in getting your perspective on actually because you have a wealth of experience active reserve plus going to film school and then doing this as a job uh for the last you know 20 or so years in your opinion, what makes a good slash successful military storyteller? Great question. Um, being in the Department of Defense, United States military, whatever branch you're in, Army, Navy, Air Force, Marines, Coast Guard, if we're, you know, if we're including everyone. Um, so, yeah, you want to be a good storyteller. Um, but it's hard, right? What does it take to be a good military storyteller? Well, first you got to just accept that you're operating an environment that is not necessarily (laughs) designed or set up for your setting you up for success. You gotta, (laughs) you're in this, you're in the hostile environment, right? Because I hear guys and gals say like, well, I don't have this and I don't have, yeah, you don't, but, but you know what? 
uh, I had a buddy years ago who was in Marine Corps pilot training. They didn't have flight hours or jets, man. You know, I mean, the <laughs> Marines, you guys always take it in the shorts. The Marines always are like begging for this or that, right? You guys don't have bullets sometimes or you don't have the right weapons, but somehow <laughs> Marines always get it done. And that attitude is necessary. Now in the branches like Air Force and Navy where, well, we're a little more accustomed to, you know, uh, uh, more comfortable environments and having the right equipment and all of that. Well, you know, we don't deal as well with making do without. But the first hurdle to being a good Air Force storyteller, I think, is you've just got to accept that it is what it is and you're operating within a certain environment. Now, flip side of that coin, I want to think that even in the Marine Corps, again, who notoriously has to operate with uh, with less, right? Mm-hmm. Um of everything and the, not the latest usually um right. certainly the air force i know i just saw some posts on facebook uh and some of the storytelling groups that, where you know the new equipment came out and they got a big box it's christmas right the air force public affairs agency just sent out a bunch of you know broadcaster kits and new cameras are coming down the pike um the equipment and the opportunities that are given to you as a military storyteller are not available on the outside without a price, a heavy price. You know, you yes. want that latest camera on the outside, you got to buy it. And to buy it, you got to do a gig to earn it, <laughs> you know? <laughs> and so they're, they're, it, it's right in front of you for the taking and plenty do. Um, going to go on a little tangent here because we're talking overarching and we're talking photo and video for years. For the photography side got it more and they took more advantage um, you know, uh, and they went to the, they had the workshops for themselves. Um, they, they did the training and because it's a, it's a lone wolf kind of sport, right? The, the photography, it's me and my camera and my lenses and I'm out there. They were mm-hmm. more entrenched in finding those good human interest stories and capturing them in visually alluring ways, thus making their visual information uh, opportunities, I think, in their storytelling abilities, I think they progressed beyond, I'll say, those of us in the motion media realm, because I think I, even though I am a, maybe a middling photographer, I am definitely much more of a, a filmmaker, visual, motion visual storyteller. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think ways that we weren't taking advantage for many of the, say, 20 some years that I have been coming up in this career field and watching guys and gals uh, get either get their start and flourish or feel frustrated and and hit brick walls. But again, there's never been a time in, you know, the history of this business of storytelling, visual storytelling that we are in, I think where you, you've had more opportunity to do more with less, um, to make it look good. You know, you can take a DSLR and, and, and make a really beautifully filmic looking video story now on your own, or you can get together with a couple people and get a crew and you know fill different roles producer director cinematographer audio technician editor and 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 perform those uh differing skills on a you know on a team to to then elevate your game um you know it's never been as accessible because you know in the 80s you had to haul around huge amounts of gear and in the 80s editing systems were a room full of gear Mm -hmm. you know now it's now it's a dslr and a laptop 
yeah. you know, maybe an external microphone, but you can do some great work. The challenge is, I think, getting out there and doing it and taking advantage of the opportunities to get better. Um, we now have these workshops for video folks that we didn't have 10 years ago. We've had them for maybe the last seven years with the shoot off video workshop in DC. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think so. Th- that's a community giving back. Um, the, for 20 some years, there's been a DOD photo workshop that's moved around and been in the DC area and been helmed originally by uh, a, a couple of old school Navy and Air Force guys, uh, Chip Mari and Ken Hackman, who are you know together kind of the patriarchs of the uh, military photojournalism community. Mm-hmm. Um, that's been passed on now to Bob Houlihan from the Navy and JT Locke, uh, both good friends of mine, JT Locke from the Air Force, um, good pals of mine. And in doing that, they were also foresighted enough to say, let's combine this with video and let's get this going. And so I've been helping out with that workshop every June for the past few years. I think this will be the fourth year that we will have had um, video as a part of that. So the challenges are that you're kind of on your own. Uh, you've got equipment challenges sometimes, but other times you're, you've got great situations. Um, but I would say it's more that you're on your own. You know, a lot of these folks are working non-deep spots. And so you got to have that desire and that want, you know, if you're looking to kind of blend into a group, this isn't, this, the military storytelling is probably a really tough endeavor for you Mm -hmm. um but if you're willing to do things the way that i think you and i and some of the others do where you take the opportunities you get and you and you and you you seek out the others so then then you will learn and grow and you will find a community that may not be at your base your post whatever wherever you are but you will find that we're out here we know what you're going through and we're willing to help um you know, the, the folks I meet at these workshops, I think probably to include you, Phil, um, I, you know, I hear from guys on a regular basis, um, sending me emails or Facebook messages saying, uh, hey, can you check out this piece? This is what I'm working on. And mm-hmm. I love to see what they're doing. And uh, I mean, the, there's some amazing work coming out of our military storytellers. And I think I see their work in improving and taking the next step, kind of the next level kind of steps when they come to these collaborative uh, uh, workshops where we can kind of all work together to elevate our game. Um, and that's, that's what I would say is, is the, 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 I've cited the challenges, but I think the solutions or, you know, the, the getting around the challenges is tapping into that network. Yeah, I completely agree. And it's interesting because I have a dude that works for me now who's, one of the hungriest, hardest working um, video storytellers I've probably ever had work with me. Um, and his entire, you know, he tells me stories where his entire like first four or five years in the Marine Corps um, was like he worked for a terrible command and they didn't let him go shoot stories. And he all he wanted to do was go work. And I was like, ah, that's yeah. that's the worst thing you could do to somebody that wants to do it. Um, mm-hmm. and so, and he, he's never been to a shoot off. He's never been to a, whatever. And I was so excited to hear that the DOD is going to be in San Diego this year. I was like, Oh, my home. Perfect. <laughs> like I'll be there. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah. Yes. That's the, you know, that's the challenge. This guy is experiencing something I've heard air force, uh, uh, storytellers tell me as well. Um, same thing, you know, that when you are that solo operator and now we're combining all the career field and there, you're going to get pulled in a million directions. If you're desiring to be a creative, a visual storyteller, and, and heck let's throw writing in there too, mm-hmm. you know, and writing more than just reporting the main story, but you want to be a more in-depth feature type writer, creative writer, you may have to extend your day a bit or seek out mentorship elsewhere because you're not going to necessarily find it in that one deep slot in that base where that commander or, you know, first sergeant is not aware of all that you can or could be doing. Um, and that's the toughest part. And, I, and, and, the, and the frustrating thing for me is, is that oh, it's a lot of our youngest troops. So they come straight out of their basic training and then tech schools and they're put in this environment and they may have been young and hungry and interested and they're ready for mentorship and they're ready for it to trickle down and hit them, but they're put somewhere without it. Uh, and that's, yeah. that's, I would say that that is the biggest challenge um, because if they never get it and they're just a sponge and that sponge dries up, and now they're not going to get it. They're going to get out after assignment one, you know, after the first four years, and they're never going to turn into the Phil Elgies and Jimmy Shays, JT Locks, all these, all, all, all of you guys who I have watched over the years really elevate your game and, and, you know, your great storytellers working both inside and outside. Um, but th- there's the potential is there. Um, they've just got to seek it out themselves because it's, it's really, it's not going to, nobody's going to hand it to them. They've got to come looking for it, but we are out here. I hope that's what this podcast can do, Phil, is that I hope. Dude, that's, that's a goal. I, I hope the kids out there, and I don't refer to you, I'm not saying kids as in, uh, in not meaning that demeaning way, guys, if you're out there listening, if you are a guy or a gal who's on your first term assignment and you're, you know, and you're feeling these frustrations, we hear you. We have maybe not been in your exact position, but we hear you. We see it a lot. Don't give up hope. Find us. Look for us. We're here for you. We will make sure you get the mentorship and get the opportunities to uh, to become amazing storytellers. It's there for you. And we need you for now. We need you in uniform doing it because the military needs storytellers. We need people to capture these moments, capture the history pass on what's happening operationally now to commanders and to outside uh, observers, you know, the public who wants to see what's happening in our military. And we need it for the historic record. And the better you are at storytelling, the better you are at doing all of those things that your commanders want you to do. They just don't know how and what to be asking for. So we hear your frustration. Um, Listen to this podcast. It's, it's, it's an, it's one way to uh, be tapping into that community, but reach out to those around you through the workshops and, and, and through the folks you know, and then find one of us and, and we'll talk with you and we'll give you a hand. That's awesome. God, that's awesome. Yeah, I couldn't agree with you more. And I think that, um, I mean, the stuff wasn't around when I was coming up, like the <laughs> the DOD was around, but some of the other stuff wasn't. And I, and I always wanted, like, when I finally realized that, like, the DC shoot-off was a thing, I was like, oh, my God, like, that, I wish this was around when I was 
you know, mm-hmm. like first enlistment. And um, that's exactly what I wanted this to be, man, was uh, like a stopgap between the, the workshops. And if you're even though we just did a workshop in Alaska, um, you know, like if you're stuck in Maine or you're stuck in like Kansas, where like, sorry, you know, you may not have a bunch of people coming out to you like this. This hopefully will be a, a library of information and inspiration that you can use to uh, mm-hmm. further, you know, step your game up. All right. A couple more questions for you because I, I uh, now, now you got me thinking. So, um, <laughs> yeah. so you've been doing this for a while now, right? Um, and I think you hinted yeah. at this earlier, but I'd like to hear like, what's, where do you see yourself or what's your kind of five-year goal? Like, where do you want to be ultimately, if that makes sense? Yeah. Um, I have, a, I have a couple goals I'm working on right now. Sometimes goals are tough because when you when you speak them out, especially in front of the public, like this is, um, it, it creates an accountability factor. And uh, I have a really severe fear of failure that uh, I'm challenged with. And so sometimes I tend to slow roll some goals, but I'll put them out there for you because it's it's probably a good cathartic uh, or a therapeutic process for me, and, and it's good for accountability. One of them is. Um, I want to be making more long form documentaries, um, whether in sports or not. And, um, and in order to do that, I have to be finding the stories myself and then writing treatments and pitching them and getting the funding for them. It's a long process. And a lot of times I'm able to kind of hide under the busyness of the work I'm doing now, um, that pays me, um, and it's mostly these short form sports features, uh, which I tend to get contracts for doing in chunks, um, you know, a group of them. Um, but, uh, that's what I'm working on now. It's a couple pitches for long form documentaries through various, uh, funding, uh, sources. Uh, so yeah, in five years, I'd, I'd love to be doing a lot more of that, you know, a couple documentaries a year that my little production company can manage and that I kind of come in and out of and have other people working on so that I'm not just solely focused on those. I've probably done about three or four sports documentaries, uh, more long form documentaries. And I really like them, but I haven't done any over the last year and a half or two years. And so I'm feeling um, like I'm regressing in that area. And that's what I'd like. Uh, The big area I'd like to move into is narrative storytelling. Um, And that's, you know, being a director of scripted content, Mm -hmm. whether that be serialized television or films. Um, That feels like a bigger goal, tougher one to reach. One that maybe I never get to, um, you know, I'm, I'm in my mid forties and, uh, I'm not the youngest guy around anymore, although I feel pretty young, uh, and eager. Um, so, but I'm working toward that. Um, that one's feels a little further off and, uh, you know, again, there are scripts to be written there. That's how you do that. Uh, not so much treatment, but I've got to have screenplays written for that. Um, a couple ideas working there but they they are farther off in completion and and those feel like longer goals and then uh, i'll reiterate one of the goals i mentioned earlier and that is just to continue to tell good stories Um, stories that motivate me that i feel are important that are maybe not as known as they could be and that stir myself and others to emotion and action um Stories that enlighten, stories that um, elevate the human condition. 
that that will always be a goal of mine. And so in all of these, some of those goals are more, you know, like uh, very, you know, checkbox oriented, like I'm going to do this thing and that, but that overarching goal for me, which is to, if I'm going to be a storyteller to tell good stories, um, including all of those facets of it that I just mm-hmm. mentioned, um, that one remains, you know, if, if at some point in my um, evolution, I, uh, I stray from that and I'm just doing it for the paycheck um, or I feel like I've lost the motivation to, you know, it doesn't stir within me that thing that I felt as a young guy. Um, I'll probably jump out of it, get a corporate job somewhere or just, you know, drive an Uber cab or something uh, because (laughs) I don't know that it'll be worth the hassle and the heartache of the, the freelance hustle because it's tough. Um, It's tough out here. It's not easy. And it, I think it, maybe it gets easier. Um, it never gets easy. Uh, I still have that every time I, even if I do a bunch of work and I got a little bit of money in the bank that, that'll hold me over for a while. Um, after about a week or two of not having the next thing, my stomach doesn't feel good. You know, I need, I need to find the next project, the next thing. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I feel like I'm always hustling, Yeah, hustling, Sometimes feels like a young person's game too. So it's a, uh, it's a tough go. I, I get asked a lot, Phil, um, by military storytellers who've hit a point in their career about mid range, maybe about where you are, who are looking to jump out. Like, you know, what am I? What do I do? How, how do you do it? All this, that, and it's 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 the toughest question in the world because I think everybody wants there to be this push button thing or this path, right? This map that I can just give them. Here's the map. Here's what you do. First you do this, then you do this, then you do this. Um, but um, I'll answer that question right here and now because I know probably you and a lot of the folks listening are interested, uh, the ones who are you know, not as junior as maybe the crowd that we've been talking to. And, and the truth of it is, is this, if, if you've got the passion for storytelling, then, then that's it. That's going to be your thing. If you try to do something else, you might make more money or have a more stable life, but you won't be, you won't be itching. Sorry. You won't be scratching that itch. That's going to be there until you die. You get one go at this life, right? You get one time around you might as well do the thing you love. If that's the thing you think you love, you got to take that chance. Jumping out of the stable environment of the military, and I mean stable as in that paycheck's there. You mm-hmm. know you know what you're going to wear to work, right? <laughs> probably, something digi- probably something in digi-camo, you know. Um, you've got a community and you know when this job's done, somebody somewhere – in a cubicle, some in some building in Texas likely is going to tell you where your next job is. When you jump out of that, whether like me into the reserves or, you know, cold turkey into the civilian world, it's probably going to be the scariest moment of your life. You will survive it. I promise you'll survive it. Okay. I did it. Thousands of others have survived it. Um, 
I was terrified at times. Not so much jumping into school at Syracuse, but when Syracuse finally finished, that jumping to New York and L.A. was tough. But I just kept focused on that this is what I want to do. I don't know what else I want to do. This is the thing I like. I love it when a story comes together and I show it to people and they watch it and they are moved by it. I like it when I show a story and if it's a documentary story and it's about someone and they watch it, they think, wow, you really captured what I was hoping to say, even if I didn't say it that way and I didn't know I was saying it that way, you really delivered on what is my story. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Boy, that's so fulfilling to me. And if it's fulfilling to you, which I know it is for you, Phil, mm-hmm. and all of those of you out there listening who are on the cusp of, well, am I am I going to get out? Am I going to do it? Keep doing it, whether you're on the inside or the outside, keep doing it. But if it's something you want to do on the outside and make a go of it, it's going to be tough. You're going to have to survive for a bit. You might not be doing exactly what you want to do for a while. But if you're not taking a job at Starbucks and selling coffee, but you're working in some facet of the business, then you got a leg up on you know 20 other people who are trying to get to where you are. Find your way, find a mentor, and persevere. Tell stories. Tell stories on the weekend. Put them together yourself. Find passion projects. You'll hear that from a lot of people who you know do what they do. And it's can't always wait to get paid to tell a story. Tell a good story when it's in front of you, whether someone's going to pay you to or not. Right? It's good for your practice. It's good for your discipline, and it shows that you're willing to to go the extra mile. And then here's another part of it. I think that's really important for those who want to work in any industry, whether it's military or not. Although the military kind of forgives us our sins for being not the easiest people to get along to, because that's kind of considered tough in the military. <laughs> but in the civilian in the civilian world, people want you to play nice in the sandbox, right? You're going to mm-hmm. get hired back nine times out of ten more because. You're a good person. Yeah, that guy's a good guy. Good to be around. You know, nice having lunch with that guy on the times we're not producing something. Not a yeller or screamer. Doesn't give me attitude when I ask him to do something. Um, That's what's important out there is the good attitude. Um, And then having the talent and the skills is as well. But gosh, I would say it's, I've seen more people get hired back because they were easy to work with than sometimes uh, people getting hired back because they were the most talented. You know, the most talented will get you a lot, but the instant someone has equal talent and uh, a more amenable demeanor and personality and is easier to work with, you know, the hiring parties will make a switch um, Mm -hmm. because we all gotta, you know, we all gotta be out there all day. Why not be out there with people who are, you know, cool to work with? So exactly, I told somebody uh, recently. <laughs> I think my first kind of big freelance shooting gig. Um, if you work at my level, and I mean this is like a lower level, um, everybody's you know, ex good. Like we're all good, right? 
Um, and my mm-hmm. my whole mentality was like, I'm just gonna go in and be the coolest dude. <laughs> like I'm gonna exactly sh- right. shoot this the best I possibly can, and that's great. But I want them to be like, huh? Phil, Phil's an all right guy, you know? Dude, that is I'm t- that is bigger than you know, uh, <laughs> and I can't I can't foot stop that foot stomp that one enough. Um, that was a great instinct, and that will get you. If not hired back immediately on, you know, the follow-up gig, people remember that, and they they want to have you around for that reason. Um, and I'll be honest, I've not always been the best at that. You know, coming out of the military, where you're kind of used to saying, you know, take the hill and do it now, and don't give me any excuses, right? That's mm-hmm. sort of the military mindset, right? We we operate that way. Um, I've had to adjust my. Uh, demeanor a bit um over the years and not just expect that well let's do it the right way because the right way is the right way and people you know and 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 there's no excuse for whatever you know you've just gotta back off of that a little bit give it some room to breathe and um you know try to be a better better human uh than a lot of times the military trains us to be Uh, and frankly, you know, we should all do that when we're in uniform as well anyway, you know, not just, not just coast on that, uh, well, I'm in the military, I can yell at people kind of, uh, right. mentality as hey, again, we all got to go to work and come home and nobody wants that aggravation really long-term in their life. So, um, <laughs> that's perfect. Uh, okay. So two more questions, man, and then I'll, I'll let you go. Um, we all have these, right? Um, I want to say like, what do they call them? You're in like a creative desert or a challenge. Maybe you can't overcome something. Yeah. What do you sure. do? Writer's block, yeah. dry spot, something like that. Dry spell, yeah. All that stuff. Do you have any, I mean, what do you do? Do you have any habits or tendencies that you lean towards when you're trying to either solve a problem or think of something or maybe look at it a different way? Um, to kind of like get over that hump? <laughs> uh, I, I, yeah, I, I mean, I don't, I don't know that I've, uh, I, I have these fearful moments, you know, so I don't write as much as I should. I am horrible at not writing these screenplays I've been intending to, that I've got pages of notes and outlines for, um, I guess in, in a way that could be considered, you know, a writer's block or a dry spell. Um, how do I beat that? I don't know. I just tend to distract myself for years and don't accomplish until I get <laughs> mad enough and I try to create the space to depersonalize it and make it a little bit more here and now, um, broad scope. Like I have, I'm being asked to be creative for an idea, whether it's on, you know, on, on a shoot or, um, when, when things are in the idea phase, um, well on the, sh- on a shoot, I would say, you know, on a shoot, I have had to learn to listen, right? To listen to my DP, to listen to anybody who's there who has an idea. If I if I don't have it coming to me, um, I also have to learn to listen to myself. I make a plan when I go into a shoot, like we're going to do this, 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 and this. But I like I always like to say stories like to tell themselves. You kind of have to listen to the story. You have to listen to what's happening around you. You have to listen to your characters, especially in the documentary environment. Um, I think even in a narrative environment, sometimes you got to listen to crew as well and your trusted crew, your DPs, 
producer, if you're the director, you know, um, what else presents itself here? Ultimately, if you're the storyteller, then you take that input and you boil it down. And if you are an editor and you understand editing, then you're also um, editing in your head, right? And, and you're making that creative work. But a step back from that, in the idea phase, like where you're trying to figure out how are we going to approach this thing that's next week? How are we going to put this together in a month when I've got to do, you know, how do I write this treatment for this documentary I want to do so that it's not just run of the mill and it gets someone's attention? Again, asking trusted um, partners uh, whose ideas you, you, you value and cherish. Um, but for, for focusing on oneself, uh, and this is the God's honest truth, and I've presented this in a, in a seminar on creativity that I did a few years ago at that shoot-off video workshop. My best ideas come in the shower for me. Hmm. Okay. Something, you know, I don't know if it's, I don't know what it is, but, you know, when I hop in the shower, I feel like, and for some people that's going to be on a run, right? Mm-hmm. And that occasionally happens to me on a run as well. If I'm running, the world sort of disappears and all the things around you that are bugging you, like got to pay that bill, I got the thing in that relationship I got to deal with, um, the kids, this, the, the, oh, the schedule I got to pick up. None of that stuff matters when you're in the middle of a shower for me. You know, there's, I'm standing there naked, there's water, it's comfortable, <laughs> I'm warm. And if I, if I just sort of disappear into that, I've had some of my best ideas in the shower that I've had to pop out and to actually write down there for some people. I, you know, it's, uh, it's, it's in the waking hours or the falling asleep hours in bed, have a notebook next to the, to the, to the bed to write those things down. Or I, I've had a few people tell me when I tell them for me, it's the shower they've said on a run. And I think it's the same principle on a run. You know, you're getting into this rhythm of the body and the day to day can kind of disappear there for a while. And you just sort of are in this zone. And if, if you've been in the trenches the ideating trenches, right? Where you're trying to figure something out. Mm-hmm. That story, those characters are probably floating through your head anyway. And what I find is that's when it clicks. Um, but if you don't, if you don't give yourselves, if, if you don't give yourself these fortresses of solitude, these places to disappear into yourself, um, I think you can just end up making um, what I would call like rudimentary playbook creative decisions like things you know have worked for others and that should work here and you just do them and you move on right yeah i really think when you're when you're laboring over what to do here and how to be creative here you owe it to yourself to disappear into yourself and let that thing that you know is inside you kind of come out and then mix that with um consulting with your trusted uh storytelling peers and partners, people who you think you can bounce an idea off of and may give you something to, to, to spark something new. Those, those would be my two recommendations that would have probably worked best for me. Yeah. Um, so, and, and I, I do very similar things. I think for me, uh, running or some sort of physical activity hurts. Um, and so it forces me to think only on that thing, which allows my mind to free um, to actually solve those problems. Um, to boil it down, I mean, it, it seems like it's going back to a little bit of uh, what we were talking about earlier is, you know, trusting yourself and having your voice, but also kind of relying on that 
group of people that you trust, uh, like, Mm -hmm. you you know, your own mentors or your own um, uh, fellow creative, you know, individuals that you trust their opinion and their judgment um, and can resource for advice when you need to. Mm-hmm. Um, on top of that, and this is sort of, sort of goes along the same lines, but where do you go to find inspiration? When I run, um, and it's a good running day, um, and the sun is out and I'm listening to some classic eighties tunes. Um, <laughs> I feel very inspired. Um, I, I tend to feel like all of those things on my to-do list, especially the ones that I've been putting off because they're big projects and they feel like they could hurt or they require hours of my day. I feel more inspired to do them because I start to see like, yeah, yeah, you got this. You're good. Um, that, that, uh, that does tend to be where I go for inspiration more so than, you know, going down to the beach and watching the sunset, which my wife likes to do. And I do that because mostly it it, is beautiful and I like doing that with her or the family. Um, but I don't, I don't generally receive story inspiration or inspiration for the creative projects that I'm doing. Um, for me, that tends to be when I go for a run and the run goes well and I'm feeling like, uh, you know, my knees didn't hurt and, uh, I got a good workout and my runtime is, you know, faster than it may have been in the last time. Um, uh, that's what that tends to be. That's a pretty boring answer. I know I was hoping to give you some sort of, um, (laughs) deep, insightful, uh, I go to the top of, do I have a shaman? No, I'm just kidding. Don't have a shaman. I'll probably remember something really (laughs) inspirational as soon as uh, get off of here, but, um, no, there's a, there's I, you know, I am, I am, I am inspired when I watch a great movie or I read a great book, you know, or I, I just, I consume some sort of creative, uh, thing, you know, some, some creative output of some other human and it, and it, and it's different than something that I've seen or heard or witnessed before. And I think, man, you know, we're not just, we're not just repeating ourselves. There really is true creativity out there. I've never seen anything like this, you know, let me keep at it and hope that, you know, the work I do today, the work I do this week is not derivative, but unique and, um, and it builds upon, you know, the greater creative body of work that is. Uh, our, our greater human effort that is awesome i don't want to make assumptions but I, I feel like we've all been in a situation where we've just kind of and you know pardon my language we just kind of fuck something up like real bad mm-hmm. um <laughs> and i'm not asking for a story but have you ever done something like that um and then how do you recover from like a <laughs> like a you know big mistake let's say Oh yeah. I've had several, man. Um, so last year at Super Bowl, um, the day after the Super Bowl, I was asked to shoot, shoot a camera. Uh, and the camera I had at Super Bowl with me was a, was a, was a new 
Canon C300 Mark II. Uh, it's a great camera, fantastic chip in it. Love it. And had had used it several times prior. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we, we were in this three-camera setup with a couple of the guys who had just been selected for the uh, Hall of Fame, Pro Football Hall of Fame. And uh, I was just asked to be, you know, a, a crew cinematographer there, not not even, uh, you know, so my friend uh, who is a younger guy than me and someone who I've mentored a bit, uh, producer, director, kind of running the show, um, and then myself and my uh, and and another guy uh, similar to me, freelance producer director. We had we had shot the Super Bowl the day prior for an NFL Network uh, piece, and then we were shooting second and third camera for this uh just round table interview thing well uh we shoot the whole thing turn in the footage and and we're done for the day and i get a call it says hey there's no footage on your second card like, i i don't understand uh I don't know what's going on and uh went back over there to the hotel we had shot it and sure enough no footage on the thing <laughs> I apologized, you know, and, uh, but my buddy was getting pretty irate and, and understandably so like, why is there no footage here, man? Why is you not? And, uh, felt like a failure, you know, and this is, this is a year ago. I've been doing this for many, many years. Mm-hmm. Um, and I kind of had to deal with the fallout of that. They made it work. Um, but I let him down and, uh, you know, I, I know he's probably not too eager for me to be a, a shooter on one of his projects, <laughs> uh, these days anymore. Um, uh, and I later realized that Canon, uh, it took me a lot of research. I didn't understand. We thought it, maybe it was a card malfunction. They were asking me why I was shooting that card. And I said, the cards worked fine for me before, but you know, ultimately buck stops here. You know, I'm the guy yep. shooting the camera. The camera didn't record. I thought it had recorded. So apparently what happened is camera turned off as it spanned from one card to the other and didn't keep recording across cards like the C300 normally does. Canon changed a a setting in the camera um, to where now the new default was non-span, doesn't span between the cards. You have to go in and change a setting to make it do that. I guess guess the filmmaker types – uh, who do you know start and stop recording versus this sort of long, you know, three camera record like we were doing? Mm-hmm. Uh, don't want clips to span. Sometimes that makes it tough to read the clips in a nonlinear editing environment. Uh, I get it. Okay. Yep. All right. Uh, but I but I didn't know that that had changed here, and uh, the way I had the monitor set, um, and we were running free record time code, which means the time code just keeps going. So I mm-hmm. didn't notice that the camera had stopped recording. So ultimately that ended up being what had happened. Um, wow. And, uh, you know, all I could do was be honest. I don't know. And I don't understand why I'm sorry. I don't shoot this camera on a regular basis, but, uh, it was a failure at a time when, I mean, I never saw that coming. I've never had that happen before. Probably will never have it happen again. I've, uh, you know, I've been backing off shooting cameras anyway, but, uh, that's no excuse for it. Um, you know, the lesson learned is just always, always be on your game. Never assume anything, and all of that. Uh, yeah, I don't know how my relationship is with that guy. Even still, uh, I didn't really <laughs> care for how it all went down, and I'm sure he didn't either. Um, but uh, yeah, even even I fail um, and fail miserably and hard and in a big way. Um, 
you know, it, it makes you feel like that in that day and moment, like I'll never work again. Yeah. Um, but that's not true because, you know, um, you know, I, I'm a, I'm a seasoned producer director for them. And I was, you know, then I was, uh, Emmy nominations came out shortly thereafter. And I was the only producer who's who, producer director who had a story nominated for an Emmy last year out of the NFL network as far as features. Cause you know, and I think, you know, it said it right. And it said, look, even these kinds of guys make mistakes and we all need to just, <clears throat> excuse me. We all need to just, uh, understand that. And I think it's good for me too, because I can be a bit of a, uh, perfectionist taskmaster on set. Um, and here I was in a crew role having to, you know, know that I really did make a huge mistake and, um, and, and hear it from, you know, the guy who was in the position to be my boss in that moment in time. Um, you know, so, Hey Jim, you know, go easy. It happens to the best of us. Right. Mm -hmm. So, um, there it is. And, 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 you know, Phil, you've, you've worked with me on a set before. Um, uh, you know, it's, uh, we're all there. We're, we're working hard to make something great. Um, and, uh, even, you know, I, I can get caught up in that perfection, you know, that perfectionism is, a good quality in the sense that it, it ensures creative success. Mm-hmm. Sometimes um, we all, I can let it go too far and I need to remember, Hey, take it easy on the fellow human beings who, you know, and love even in the moment of passion and creating something. Yeah. Um, there it is. That's awesome. Oh man. You pulled up my skirt. Phil. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, I, I, I appreciate the, uh, you know, the transparency, it's nice for someone like, and I don't, you know, I don't want to put you on the spot or anything, but it's nice to, for someone like me, you know, in the stage of life where I'm at to hear like everybody you know, makes mistakes, you know, and I made, I had a job, I got hired for a, a job earlier this year, completely screwed it up, like out of character for me, um, you know, just don't expect the person ever to hire me again. The job right after that, crushed it probably one of my best things i've ever made and this is all you know motion graphic style stuff mm. and i was like well you know yeah. you win some you lose some <laughs> um, so. you certainly uh it's hard not to especially in the creative realm where we where we just we i think i think correct me if i'm wrong and tell me what you think but um i i i believe that those of us who are creative and seek out creative paths tend to feel more, uh, tend to be more empathetic mm-hmm. and tend to feel the ups and downs of life more to include our own successes and failures. And so uh, I would encourage all of us to include myself and you to, when we do fail, go ahead and, you know, uh, sometimes that failure leads to like that, that woe is me period where you mourn it and you put on the, you know, the sappy music and you're like, Oh God, it's over. <laughs> don't dwell. So I'm not going to say avoid that, but maybe don't dwell there too long. Use it as inspiration. You know, turn it into a muse of sorts that propels you into the next thing, but certainly don't let it stop you. Do not let it shut you down. You know, in anything, be the one who makes the choice. Don't let the circumstance dictate your fate. 
um, be the master of your own destiny. And don't let a failure dictate your next step. Get a clear head and then you make that decision because no good decision ever comes from, you know, happening within the, the, the wake of a failure. Um, and we're all, we are all going to fail at some point and we're all going to fail again. You know, that's the thing <laughs> you and I, we're, we've got, we've got failures in our future. Let's be prepared that they're going to happen. Small or big, hopefully not as big as failing to record, you know the the thing that I'm asked to be there taping. But uh, uh, it, it happens, right? And there are other failures. I, that's just the one I chose to share. That I could regale you with several others uh, <laughs> throughout, you know, of epic proportions. Um, and I've survived at least to a certain extent, most or all of them, and you know, continue to be you know hired uh now and again to do creative work so there we have it that's fantastic man i appreciate the insight and the honesty uh it's hard for for like you mentioned some some of us whether it be you know we're kind of alone and unafraid trying to figure out our, our place in this world or you know transitioning from one um stage of life to another uh so it's nice to Nice to hear that everybody's been there and, you know, people will be there after us. Um, mm -hmm. Thanks, man, for taking the time. I appreciate it. Any, uh, any last words? I'll just say thanks for having me on here, Phil. Uh, always a pleasure to chat and spend time with you. I've got a couple stories coming up for the NFL Network for, for draft uh, this year. There's a uh, fellow by the name of Baker Mayfield who won the Heisman Trophy this year and I've been asked to uh, go and visit with him and do a story with him so I think that's the next thing I'll be heading out for. I've always some fun things you know after this long and building so many relationships and trying things and wanting to do things and um, you know having these relationships with various people what I what I have found and, and that's and that's where I think I I would leave the final words of um, you know, if this is your thing, as I had mentioned before, if this is the thing that floats your boat and this is what you want to do, well, then give it a good long shot. You know, don't just say, I'm going to give it six months. And if that doesn't work, I'm going to go sell insurance um, because you probably won't get a chance to come back to it. Uh, maybe you would, but I'm going to say I doubt it. Um, money is a trap. Security is a trap. When you let yourself settle into a um you know a secure job with benefits and in nine to five somewhere the odds are going to decrease rapidly that you're going to jump back out into this uh, volatile unstable life of the creative world um you know while you've got the stones for it give it the old college try give it, give it your best shot push yourself to the limit of it you know don't give up on it forge relationships take chances be creative when people aren't paying you and immerse yourself in the world seeking out mentors and growth and i really do believe that if you stick with it long enough and, and you've got bit of that talent to go with it then you're gonna make it and you're gonna be all right and you will hopefully eventually be you know calling this a profession 
and not something you hope will become a profession. So that's the goal, right? That whatever your passion is, whether it be photo, video, graphics, hand drawing, whatever it is that that you will be able to use that to support a life that you love and a life that you're proud of. And I think that Jim gave us some really, really good insight into what that looks like. And it's a lot of patience, sticking it out, understanding that we're going to make mistakes, but we have to recover from them. And just because we mess something up doesn't mean it's the end of the world. And that if we really, truly want this bad enough and work hard enough and are good enough people, we'll get it right. It's not an easy road that we choose, but I will tell you, speaking from experience, as soon as you stop doing the thing that you were put on this earth to do, you won't be nearly as fulfilled. That doesn't make it easy. That doesn't make it all the time fun, but never stop pursuing whatever your passion is. Once again, thank you so much for listening. I can't tell you enough how much I appreciate all the feedback and all the positive words and kindness that's come my way. And let's make this the best thing possible. All right. Reach out to me if you have any thoughts. And until next time, this has been Creative by Design with me, Philip Elgie.